0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
2: They were campaigning for their human rights and I think if you look at it as a human rights movement you get quite a different perspective.
3: That was June Purvis discussing the suffrage campaigners of a 100 years ago.
0: to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This is our second episode of the week, devoted to the story of the battle for votes for women, on the centenary of some British women being granted the vote in 1918. Today's interview is with June Purvis, Emeritus Professor of Women's and Gender History at the University of Portsmouth, and author of a new biography of Christabel Pankhurst. June spoke to our Deputy Editor, Charlotte Hodgman, about the long and sometimes controversial campaign for female suffrage.
4: Your biography of, of Christabel Pankhurst has, has just come out. Um, what made you want to focus on Christabel of, of all the Pankhurst sisters?
2: Well, I knew Jill Craigie when she was alive. Um, she's was the wife of Michael Foote, one-time Labour Party leader. And I thought Christabel had been very misrepresented, and I got in touch with Jill, and she thought the same. And there is this biography of her, the only one that there is, written by David Mitchell and published in 1977. And it is so anti feminist. He presents her as um, having incestuous desires on her mother, as being autocratic, ruthless uh, you name it, every bad adjective object- you could. Use against a feminist is there and somehow I didn't feel this was right and I had I began reading about Christabel and some of her writing so that prompted me really to to go into um, the research into the archives a lot more.
4: What's your impression of what, what she was like as a woman?
2: Well I think she was very determined She was uncompromising in her attitude on the votes for women question, but she was also kind. And I think that is something that doesn't come out at all in the David Mitchell biography, nor in the very influential book written by her sister Sylvia, The Suffragette Movement, 1931, that was first published, and Sylvia's the suffragette movement has become the standard reading of the suffragette movement and of Pankhurst's family life. And in that book, Sylvia represents uh, Christabel as being once again ruthless, but also right wing. And I don't think she was right wing. What we've got to remember is that Sylvia was a socialist feminist and she wrote her book, The Suffragette Movement, from that angle. So she wants to portray the class conflict between working class and middle class women. And she wants to ally the Women's Social and Political Union, or WSPU. She wants to ally that to the socialist movement. Now, Christabel I think you can only understand her if you see her as a radical feminist who wanted to unite all women together, irrespective of their social class, and whose main concern was the power struggle between women and men. And so Christabel saw the the liberal government and men generally as being very um, anti-female liberation.
4: Okay, I mean, it sounds like there's, there's quite a big divide then between Sylvia and, and Christabel in their, in their beliefs. What about the um, the other the other uh, siblings and also um, their mother? I mean, what were relationships like between them? All they all had quite different personalities and, and, and beliefs, didn't they?
2: Yes, I think the upbringing of the Pankhurst girls, in particular, explains explains a lot about their later lives. So they were taken to radical meetings at an early age they had literature about radical issues about women's suffrage delivered to their home and they read all that and they were often involved in collecting money at these meetings and talking to the people and hearing the discussions that were going on and so this made them all quite individualistic And Emmeline Panker said that she she didn't want her children to go to school because she thought they would lose their individuality. And what you find is that there was a particular rivalry, rivalry that developed between Christabel and Sylvia as they grew older. When they were younger, Christabel was very much the older sister who looked after Sylvia, who had poor eyesight and didn't learn to read until she was about six or so. But as they got older, the rivalry between Christabel and Sylvia develops quite strongly. And that was because Christabel became very critical of socialist men in the Independent Labour Party who wouldn't give priority to women's suffrage Whereas Sylvia was much more a socialist in that way, and, and accepted uh, what the ILP was saying.
4: Okay, I mean, you, you've also you previously described Christabel as being um, her mother's favourite. Would you is that something you still stand by?
2: Yes, Christabel was her mother's favourite child. She was the only child that Emmeline breastfed, and all all the children knew that, and they accepted it but she was also very bright and um, being the eldest you know treated much more like an adult
4: um i mean her first sort of real uh, she sort of came to public notice was in during a liberal party meeting when she she sort of interrupted by by shouting demands for for voting rights for women um what what impact did this have sort of on her and also on, on the cause itself
2: the free trade hall meeting on the 13th of october 1903 when Christabel and Annie Kenney asked a question about votes for women from um, the Liberal MP, Sir Edward Gray, that was very important because they waited till the end of his speech, asked their questions. He didn't reply. Then they were told to put the question in writing, which they did, and he still didn't comment. And so then they jumped up, and shouted out, um, will the liberal government, will a liberal government give votes to women? That was very, very important because they were rushed outside where um, they were arrested because Christabel committed the technical offense of spitting at a policeman. And so they were arrested, and in the police court next day, they refused to pay a fine, but chose imprisonment instead. Christabel had a week, Annie had five days in prison. And of course that was taken up by the press and splashed on the front pages. And it brought a lot of women into the WSPU. Don't forget it was women only. And that I think that shows how brilliant Christabel was as a tactician. She was the key strategist of the WSPU and she devised all sorts of tactics like this to make the Votes for Women campaign um, a national campaign.
4: I mean, what, what was prison like for her um, at, at this, this time in history? What, what, what was she have experienced when she was in prison?
2: They were put in a t- strange ways, prison in, in Manchester, Um, And she found it quite claustrophobic, as did Annie. Annie in particular found it very difficult. And when they went to chapel, um, Christabel made sure that she held Annie's hand because Annie was finding it very difficult. And Christabel also writes about the wooden spoon that prisoners had to eat their horrible sort of food with. And how it it couldn't be cleaned properly, and how there wasn't a hot water to wash the dishes that they use for their food.
4: I mean, I mean, prison. Um, sort of, were a number of the sisters. Well, Sylvia and and Christabel was sort of went to prison a number of times, didn't they? Um, and went and hung. Uh, Sylvia went on hunger strike. Did, I don't know whether Christabel did she?
2: No, 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 she didn't. And. I think because she was the key strategist and tactician of the WSPU, they wanted to keep her out of prison. Um, So that was an agreement with her and her mother and with Emmeline Peckett-Lawrence, who was the other leader of the WSPU.
4: Okay. I I mean, Sylvia... um had to experience force feeding didn't she um can you maybe just explain a little bit about the the sort of government thinking behind this what what you know what were they hoping to achieve by by doing this to to the suffragettes
2: yes well um it was in july nineteen o nine that Marianne wallace donlop went on hunger strike and she was released after seventy one hours and the The WSPU and Christabel and Emmeline Pankhurst, they all thought, oh, this is wonderful. We've got a tactic with which to beat the government. But, of course, by the end of September 1909, the government was forcibly feeding hunger-striking women. And they justified that in terms of saving them from dying. You know, these were women who would starve themselves to death. And they also said it was a common practice on lunatics, that was the word they used at the time, um, and those who were mentally um, impaired in other ways.
4: And it would have been a horrific experience for them.
2: Being forcibly fed was a horrific experience. And if you read the accounts of the women who were forcibly fed, it, it brought tears to my eyes. Um, There were two main methods of forcible feeding. You could either have a tube about three to four feet long, stuck up your nose, up your nostril, or the worst method was to hold open your jaws with clamps, either wooden clamps or steel clamps, that cut into the soft tissue of the mouth and then push this tube down. And the liquid that they used often was a greasy sort of mixture of um, animal fats. And then the tube would be pulled out roughly and usually you would vomit all over the people who who had forcibly fed you. And if you read the accounts by the suffragettes who were forcibly fed, you find many of them saw it as a form form of instrumental rape of the body, you know, this pushing of tubes into you. And, of course, there was overwhelming um, physical force used, just as in rape. You were held down either on a bed by four sturdy wardresses or your ankles were tied to a chair and you were pulled back. So it was a horrendous experience, and some people don't forget were forcibly fed at least two hundred and fifty-two times. That happened to Kitty Marion um, and and Grace Rowe.
4: How did the public feel once they, this information got out? Did they was, it, was did it create more sympathy for the for the suffragettes?
2: I think the population, as far as you can gauge it, I think they were mixed in their views. I think there was initial horror about it, um, and then by about beginning of 1914, when suffragettes were being drugged as well to make them more docile in order to make it easier to push these tubes into their bodies, by then, by early 1914, I think there was very much a revulsion against it. And also some doctors spoke out very bravely against it, saying, saying it was being used as a punishment to, for the women uh, and, and not as um, you know, medical practice to save lives.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Visit BetterHelp.com slash history extra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash history extra.
4: One of the enduring debates um, about the suffragettes is their use of uh, of violence um, and whether it was justified um, in, in in getting the vote. Um, how did Christabel feel about the sort of militant side of of the cause and and the use of violence to w- to win the vote for women?
2: Well, I think it's a, must, a much misunderstood term, militancy, as she developed it and as the suffragettes um, spoke about it. It included a wide range of behavior behaviours. So for Christabel, militancy meant throwing off the slave spirit that she thought women had developed, whereby they were always subservient to men. So for her, it meant women being articulate, demanding, not asking politely, for their political rights. And it involved a wide range of activities. So it could involve um, setting fire to a post box, you know, destroying the mail. But it could also um, involve other more peaceful things like standing up in a church service and Church of England service and interrupting when they said the creed and say, we pray for Emmeline Pankhurst and Christabel, her daughter, dee-dum-dee-dum-dee-dee. And if you read that, it, it's really quite wonderful, um, that feminist version of the creed, because it's got the same rhythm as the Church of England creed. That was also a militant act. Um, whether militancy helped or hindered the campaign is a, is a debate amongst historians, Now, why did the suffragettes become more militant from 1912 and engage in damage to property? Well, one of the key reasons was the violence they experienced on Black Friday on the 18th of November 1910 when they tried to reach Parliament with a petition about votes for women and they were roughly pushed back by the police now, many of the assaults that they experienced at that time were sexual in nature. So, breasts were pinched, um, policemen's legs were put between the crotches of women, um, they were pulled by their hair, they had their skirts pulled up over their head. And the women said to Mrs. Pankhurst, What is the point of us campaigning peacefully? for the vote for women if we're going to be treated in this way. We might as well take a stone and break a window and then the policeman would come running to arrest us and then we'd go to prison that way without less damage to our bodies. So I think that explains this step change and going to these more militant methods from 1912. Now, whether the more militant methods from 1912 helped or hindered the campaign. I think you've got to relate this very much to the the gender of the people doing this. These were women, some of them middle class women, some of them in professions, some of them working class women doing this. And there was a general feeling of revulsion. Women acting like this, they're supposed to be feminine and home loving. So I think you've got to Look at it um, through these gendered eyes. Christabel's argument was that men had used violence to get the vote and they were successful. Why shouldn't women do it? And if you look carefully at the kind of acts of damage to property they did, they always made sure that they never killed anybody and they never harmed anyone. You know, sometimes stones would be wrapped in paper, when thrown through a window. So, um, I mean, I I just can't understand why people don't think it helped the cause at all. I, I think it did, because it showed that women were not prepared to be doormats any longer. And whether they were terrorists, I think this is a very futile debate. Some people argue that they were terrorists. I mean, it's like saying that, People in South Africa campaigning against apartheid were terrorists. They were claiming for a democratic right to be recognized as human beings just because they were black. Um, You know, they they wanted to be recognized as human beings. And similarly with the suffragettes. And this is a very important point that they were campaigning for their human rights And I think if you look at it as a human rights movement, you get quite a different perspective.
4: What about the First World War? Because suffragette activity died down a lot, didn't it, during the the First World War. Do you think um, that the vote would have happened uh, or or, or been given if the First World War hadn't have happened? Was it kind of inevitable?
2: No, um, I think the campaign before the... First World War was critical in getting women the vote. And don't forget, although Christabel and Emmeline Pankhurst called off the damage to property militancy, they didn't, and this is a very important point, they didn't drop the campaign for women's suffrage. What they did was they became very patriotic. They spoke about the... um, necessity for women to engage in war work as a way to win their enfranchisement after the war. So it's still there in their speeches about votes for women, but it's not just a a single-issue campaign, of course. And um, this debate about the war won women the vote, well, if you look at the categories of women who were enfranchised with the 1918 Act, there were certain categories of women over the age of 30 and women graduates. And the act did not enfranchise the young working class woman without a property qualification who had worked in the munitions factory. So they were excluded.
4: Do you think the Pankhursts are, are overrated um, in you know having achieved the vote for women?
2: No, I mean, everybody played their part who campaigned for the vote, um, and that's very important to say that. But I think the point about the Pankhurst, and particularly Emmeline and Christabel, is that they were inspirational, charismatic figures who were also powerful orators. And they had this cry of, rise up women. And women did rise up. Thousands and thousands of women joined the suffrage movement, and, um, of course, many more read their newspapers, first of all, votes for women, and then from October 1912, the suffragette. So it was spread around. And women would sometimes just give money to the suffragette cause, but they wouldn't engage in the militant acts. So they were almost like um, silent activists, I call them. They were subscribers, but they were important because they still gave money. And, and even f- from 1912, you find that the income for the WSPU was very high.
4: Um, Christabel was, was one of 17 women who stood for election in, in 1918, the, the year that the vote was given to, to certain women over the age of 30. Um, did she expect to win her seat? Uh,
2: no. Um, I've gone through all the documentation that I had on that. And she thought she wouldn't win, that there was too much prejudice against women being in Parliament. And she lost, as you know, by just over 700 votes. And from what I can gather from the sources, her mother was more disappointed for her eldest daughter failing to get into Parliament than Christabel herself.
4: Mm. I mean, did, did Emmeline not want to stand herself for, for Parliament?
2: No, she thought she wanted that honour for her daughter, her eldest daughter and her favourite daughter. And I think she thought she was too old, really. To...
4: What was sort of the level of support for Christabel among, among female voters? Do we know whether she got a lot of the female votes or were even women a bit wary of having a, a woman in Parliament?
2: She stood in a working-class constituency, Smethwick, in the Midlands, um, and she campaigned hard there for her own election, and she had a group of supporters. And I think the you, the female munition workers did support her. She was quite popular with them, and, and she only lost by a small amount. And some historians think that if she had stood in a more middle-class constituency, she would have been elected
4: what happened to the Pankhursts once the the Representation of the People Act had been passed in in 1918 in February? Uh, what what did the Pankhursts do after that? Did they continue campaigning for for those women who were still disenfranchised, or did they go off and do different things?
2: Well, don't forget, Emmeline didn't have any money, and so she had to find work, and she couldn't find work in Britain. But the Canadian government offered her a job lecturing about the dangers of funereal disease. And so she goes off to Canada. Christabel later joins her there. The war had a profound effect upon Christabel, particularly all the carnage, you know, with so many young men being killed. She was browsing in a bookshop one day and she comes across a book on... Um, the second coming of Christ. And by November 1918, she is converted to second Adventism, but she keeps it quiet for at least three years, and it's not until 1921 that she comes out as a second Adventist. That is someone who believes in the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. And she then has this second career as a very successful writer, of Second Adventist books, and also as a very successful preacher of the Second Advent. What is interesting about this phase in her life that she often emphasizes the role of women in Christianity. So, for example, that when Christ was crucified and his body was placed in the tomb, it was women whom he first spoke to. So you find still a feminist thread going through her writings. And also, don't forget that women weren't accepted in the Church of England at that time as priests. And so she went um, to the Second Advent Testimony, which which did accept women. So it was still a feminist act. There were still few women preachers at that time. and, And she was very successful in that. And of course, she was living in the United States then, which I think is much more, um, where Christianity is much more acceptable. So from 1940, she lived in the United States until she died in 1958. Sylvia, on the other hand, um, after 1918, became more left-wing. She became a founder, one of the founders of the British Communist Party, and she came to believe in extra parliamentary activity. And then in 1927, she gave birth to a son while she was unmarried. And of course, as you probably know, that deeply upset her mother because she thought it was such a disgrace to the Pankhurst name because Sylvia went to the news of the world and told her story about being a single mother and how her mother had neglected her and wouldn't answered her letters when she wrote to her about the birth of her son. And what had happened, in fact, is that Christabel and some other friends had deliberately not shown these letters to Emmeline because she was already quite worn out after all her imprisonments. And so she didn't know about this child. And the first she first time she found out about it was when she read the Sunday newspapers. And Emmeline by then was standing as a conservative candidate. And she just went downhill from that. And you find a lot of the aged suffragettes blamed Sylvia for the early death of her mother.
4: That's very sad, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Quite a fractured family in, in the end.
2: Yes, it was. And... You know, I've, I've written quite a bit about their childhood, <clears throat> and I do think the fact that they were treated as individuals and treated like little adults almost, particularly the two eldest girls, um, Christabel and Sylvia, and this emphasis upon individuality was, was so important for them. I wonder if that explains why they had such different paths in life. We haven't spoken about the youngest girl, Adela. Um, I mean, she was committed to socialism like Sylvia. And she couldn't make up her mind what she wanted to do from 1912. First of all, she wanted to be a writer. And her mother, Emily, was very worried about that because she thought she can't support herself for the rest of her life. Um, just by writing. Then she wanted to be a teacher. Um, Then she goes off to be a governess with Helen Archdale, who is very kind to her, looks after her. And then by 1914, Emmeline has got it into her head that somehow um, Adela is going to set up a rival organization to Christabel's. And so she arranges for this youngest daughter to go out to Australia. Um, and that's, that is what happened. So Adela goes to Australia, strongly socialist, marries a trade unionist and very much into the socialist movement. But then, towards the end of her life, um, she contacts a mother and says, "I agree with you and and turns right wing and converts to Roman Catholicism so it you know they they really do have a, a divergence of ways these women
4: and and in the meantime back back in uh, in England uh, did the suffragette movement continue were people still campaigning for for more women to get the vote
2: um yes um let me just go back to where, where were we, 1918. Yes, 1918, because Emmeline goes off to Canada because she's got to earn a living, <clears throat> often the campaign for the vote was left to other groups, the Six Point Group, et cetera, uh, and some of the suffragists. And so they did campaign then to, kept pressure up, I should say, on the government to introduce equality for women on the same terms as men for parliamentary voting. And it was a conservative government under Baldwin who actually brought in equality for women, voting at the same age as men, that is the age of 21. The Ramsay MacDonald government, the Labour government of the early 1920s, didn't do that despite saying that they might. And I think that is something that the Labour Party ought to consider. They didn't do that. And that was something that Emmeline and Christabel were very conscious of. of.
4: And, of course, Emmeline never lived to see, did she, the, the, the vote being given to, to all women?
2: No, I think that's, you know, one of the tragedies of history. She knew it was coming, but she died, as you know, a few weeks before it finally came.
3: That was June Purvis. Christabel Pankhurst, A Biography, is out now, published by Routledge. And June is one of the contributors to our February edition, which is a women's suffrage special. Look out for it now in all good retailers and in our digital formats. Well, that's about it for today, but please do rejoin us on Monday when we'll be looking at a very different aspect of the year 1918, the Spanish flu outbreak.
0: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
3: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.